Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing uh, fine this uh, week. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine as well. Uh, this week, we'll be talking about Johnny Toe's 1999 film, The Mission, one a gangster film, possibly of the heroic bl- uh, bloodshed genre. But before we get into that, we'll go into our usual segment where we talk about our media consumption this week. So, Jason, what have you been watching or reading or playing this week? Yeah, uh, so uh, I've been playing um, Dragon's Crown on the PlayStation Vita, and uh, I'm also considering getting Aliens Fireteam Elite on the PC because it's very cheap on Steam right now. In terms of films, I haven't watched many, just two. Um, Life for Sale which you recommended on the New York Asian Film Festival special episode of the podcast. Oh, great. Yep, the Taiwanese film that's uh, a bit like a superhero movie. Technically speaking, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really liked it to begin with. I found it had a great comic book look, and the first half of the film was exciting because the story features lots of twists and turns and jokes thrown around at like a quick pace. But um, once the whole life uh, is sold... Uh, and uh, like there's an experiment conducted. I found that it slowed down and um, the fights and the characters weren't as interesting. Uh, they didn't hold my attention as much as it did at the beginning. It's not, the ending is not as satisfying, yeah. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of talent uh, on the screen in terms of the actors. They're all really good. And the production values are excellent. It's just the story didn't quite uh, grab me. All right. And uh, the other film I watched was uh, Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, 2012 British film by uh, Peter Strickland. I don't know if you've seen that one. I know. So uh, it's basically set in the like 1960s, 70s, right um, in Italy around the time like uh, Giallo and uh, Italian horror movies are really taking off. And it's about an uptight Englishman who's um, in a production studio. He's um, doing all the sounds for the films so um he's like uh hitting watermelons with uh, uh hammers and stabbing them with knives to get the right squelch effects for like on-screen kills and uh, i found that it really captured like the aesthetic of movies of that time period with like um period correct costumes or they look correct to me <laughs> i wasn't around at that time yeah the actors were all really um like really compelling um sort of mysterious actresses going about the set and um getting involved in this englishman who's play uh played by toby jones who does a really great uptight uh character who's like uh you feel like he's coming apart at the seams because it's hinted that he's got a dark past um which uh he shows like photographs of like what looks to be an overbearing father and a creepy shed and he has like these letters um being sent from england by his mother to him about like um birds in the garden and uh like uh then uh, it kind of just goes really meta um, and the story um, just like explodes because it's more about him and the whole production process of making a horror movie and how um, it really badly affects his um, um, psycho- uh, psychological state. And uh, like there's some really nice scares um, that rely on the use of sound and like um, like the tortured faces of the actors and the um, sound boosts as they're like um, dubbing their lines. I would have liked more from the story. I was expecting something more conventional, but um, 
it's more experiential, um, more about the senses. And uh, so I find it quite an interesting watch. All right. And you said 2012? Yeah, 2012. So it's been out for quite a while. Um, I haven't spoiled anything. So um, I'd recommend people watch it. I haven't even heard of it. Sounds sounds quite an event. Yeah, so Peter Strickland, um, he came to prominence with like Catlin Varga, which is a shot in Romania. Um, I think he um, received some money in a will from his uncle and he used that money to shoot this independent re- uh, revenge thriller um, in Eastern Europe. And that put him on the, like, um, the film map. The Barbarian Sound Studio was his second film. And I think his third film was The Duke of Burgundy. Um, I... Not sure if he's. I think he's. De- he's definitely made small films since then. He's had one on the festival circuit this year about like this mu- uh, musical band that gets involved with like um, a chef who does weird um, performance art with food, something like that. So uh, yeah, Peter Strickland is kind of like um, independent UK director um, who's uh, really pushing boundaries and booking trends. All right. And uh, yeah, uh, aside from that, I've been busy publishing reviews for New York Asian Film Festival films. Um, I've covered Offbeat Cops, Lesson in Murder, Broken Commandment, Ribbon, Intimate Stranger, and Oxhead Village. Um, the only Japanese film left for me to do is um, Shin Ultraman. And um, over on V Cinema, my rewritten review for Swallow uh, has been published, as has the interview with the director, Mai Nakanishi. So um, if listeners could please check them out. Uh, I'd be uh, grateful. All right. Uh, in terms of my media consumption, I was after last, after our last recording, my life got a little bit busy. Uh, and it's also, we're having a massive heat wave here in the Western coast of the United States where I am. Uh, so it's kind of, it's almost impossible to get to go outside during the day. It's, it's really difficult, except in the morning or in the evening. Uh, so there's, there's that to deal with in addition to other stuff that's sort of kept him busy. I've only managed to write one review, and that's for Shin Ultraman. It's not out yet, but it, it hopefully will be soon. Uh, in the terms of consumption, I've continued to watch the Orville, and I think there's maybe one episode left in the current season, and it's it's really good. It's it's uh, it's getting better and better. I think I think it is a show that started with a weak first season and a and an improved second season, and I think the third season is is considerably better. I think there's still room for improvement about the show, uh, and I think it sort of hasn't quite lived up to its premise. I think it started off as a Star Trek sort of homage. And if anything else, I think the best part of the show are the, the parts that aren't like Star Trek. If anything, it's maybe more a little bit more Star Wars than Star Trek, but I, I suppose it has elements of the two. Uh, but it's really good, and I recommend it. I watched a... I think it's technically a new season of an older show called Toast of London. Oh, Matt uh, Berry. By, by Matt Berry. Well, he's the star, and he's one of the creators, writers, etc. And I think this new season... so. The original series had three seasons, or series as you call them, and uh, I think they went on a hiatus, I suppose, he did other stuff, and then they returned with a new one, and I think they this one is in Hollywood, as opposed to London, and I think they call this Toast of Tinseltown. Okay. And it's not as funny or as good as the original three series, but it's still pretty funny. Uh, it's still interesting, it's still the same thing. I think, I honestly think the funniest part is the way he pronounces certain words. Uh, and and some of, which is very uh, seemingly lowbrow humor, but he makes it very he makes it appear very good, very well. He's fantastic in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and um, the IT Crowd. Yes, yes, exactly. 
Uh, I mean, he's also fantastic in the uh, TV adaptation of what we do in the shadows. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Or the series, or the film. Or the film. Oh, it's fantastic. You should definitely watch the film. I mean, it's a great film. Really funny, too. Yeah. But the series is also pretty good. They did a a pretty good job at adapting it. uh, I haven't seen... there's There's a New Zealand television series... I don't know if it's still going on, but it was, and it's it's not it's not the same. It's more about the police. It said they're all set in the same universe, apparently, but this one is about it's called uh, Wellington Paranormal or something like that. It's about the police who investigates this, whereas the American TV series is more is about the vampires. It's very much like the movie. So the American TV series follows the model of the movie about people living in. In this house, and it's like an office sort of parody, these mockumentary type parodies uh, that that, but about the vampires, and it's uh, it's interesting. Cool. What else? And I've also been playing a video game called Stray, and it's it, it has to be one of the funnest video games that I've played in in a long time. It's 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 brilliant. You play, you control a cat, and it's a very realistically. De- sort of like depiction of a cat. So you get to do all the sort of annoying things that cats do. But you are in this post-apocalyptic world where uh, all humans have gone extinct. And the only thing left are these AIs that sort of humans left behind. And uh, the surface is assumed to be inhabitable, but it isn't because there's been hundreds of years since humans have gone extinct. So the surface has kind of recovered again. But you're this cat that starts on the surface. And this is the very beginning, so I'm not spoiling anything. But you play the cat that starts on the surface and you accidentally fall into one of the underground cities that the humans built a long time ago before they went extinct in order to protect themselves from whatever it was. Uh, that you know was making the surface dangerous and sort of like the entire goal of the game is for you to find your way up to the surface again and you sort of go through this uh, post-apocalyptic world underground that is sort of stratifying representing the sort of like the social classes that the humans had constructed from the for themselves in while before they were extinct and there is it's very fascinating the world building is similar to the world building in junkhead okay uh, so there's there's a lot of common elements. Of course, a lot of common elements that have existed in science fiction for a while. So so neither of them neither invented those concepts, but they use but it uses them. And it's uh, but it's it's because it's a game. It's not a very long game, but it is you know obviously longer than the movie. I think it has time to explore the world much better. So it expands, it fleshes out the world uh, like a lot better. And it's it's truly fascinating, and it's it has this elements of cyberpunk. In it, but also I think uh, I think they call it biopunk, so this sort of like body horror type of things, like type of imagery, and you'll get only hints as to what happened to the humans and what happened to the world, why did they disappear, and all that. So it's 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 a, a perfect. I think in my opinion, the world building is done just like in Junkhead is is so well that they don't really tell you anything. It's just the hints that you get. Uh, the story is about the cat escaping, but along the way, you find out about what happens. To the, what happened to the humans, and you know, the uh, the the way the AI, the robots are are very fascinated because they're they have evolved obviously before beyond what the humans programmed to do, and they have this sort of obsession of being human. So you see the robots pretending to eat stuff and and you know, uh, tr- pretending to sleep to mimic human behavior because it makes them feel alive. Yeah, uh, I've read that um, the setting is um, similar to Hong Kong in some way. 
Yes, so I was going to mention that. So it's it's meant the the underground city, the city that is meant to be the slums, uh, the low which uh, prop, uh, you. It's implied in the and this is minor spoilers, but not a big deal. It's implied that, like I said, the humans lived sort of like in a stratified society where the upper classes lived in the upper levels of this underground city, and then the slums were sort of like the lowest of the low where all the trash was being dumped and whatnot. And it, according to the game designers, it was modeled after Kualon Walt, the Kualon Walt city of Hong Kong. Hmm. Which, coincidentally, is where Johnny Toe grew up. Hmm, yeah. A very high-crime area. And uh, we'll have, I guess we'll talk about that, how that may have influenced his filmography. Okay. Um, so uh, it's out on PC, PlayStation, and Xbox, I take it. Yes, yes, I played it on PC, and I strongly recommend it. I, when I first, I don't know, I forget how I heard it. I think I, some very, uh, it came up on my feed somehow, and I, I thought that I had discovered an independent gem, and I was very proud of that. But then I've seen a lot of people mention this game, so it might not be as as a, a small game as I had originally thought it was. It's still an indie game. There's a very small creative team behind it. But it's, uh, I think it might be more popular. So I'm not, I cannot take the credit for discovering this game. Okay. Sounds like when to download people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah, I think, and I think you won't, be, I mean, it's gotten tremendous reviews. So it's not, you don't have to take my word for it. It's, uh, it's, it's a well, very well received game so far. And it's, it just came out like it's brand new. But, uh, you know, other than that, that's my media consumption for, uh, since last time we spoke. Okay. Okay, so after that, we have a very small news section, and uh, it involves Japan Cuts. So why don't you let us know what that is, Jason? So normally Japan Cuts takes place end of July, August, and um, we would have heard about the lineup by now. Uh, Unfortunately, um, it was announced in an email um, that the 16th edition of the Japan Cuts Festival has been postponed until summer 2023. And the reason given is that they hope that uh, they can uh, use next year's festival to bring over special guests, including actors and directors, in person. So uh, in the meantime, what we've got are uh, sort of monthly classics and monthly anime series that are going to be screened over the year by Japan um, Society in New York. But I mean, they do that anyway, right? I mean, they have those type of events year round. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that is a, a replacement for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, and I, I said this to you offline, and this is just speculation, but it seems to me that they would rather not do it than do it online again, which is partially understandable, but, but also partially disappointing that this sort of seems to, uh, this sort of temporary uh, truce with the, own, with the streaming services or the streaming community seems that it will not last past the pandemic. I've seen um, like uh, a lot of people commenting about how disappointed they are that many festivals are no longer having virtual screenings, uh, that they're all going back to physical. And uh, yeah, Japan Cuts is just the latest one to uh, go along those lines. Yeah, and I understand it uh, because we are not necessarily privy to the background sort of hoops that these festivals may have had to jump to make their selection available online. I'm sure there are extra costs involved, although maybe not necessarily for Japan Cats because they already have the infrastructure for online viewings. They've had it for a while. Yeah. Uh, uh, But perhaps the increased traffic may cost them. 
there might be additional licenses that they have. To, I don't know that for a fact. I'm just speculating that that might be. So I I can understand why they don't want to do it. But I also think that there is very little for them to lose by sort of accommodating the on, the online audience. I have no idea where this is going to go because um, like COVID is still with us and now we've got to deal with monkeypox. <laughs> so having online screenings would be a good idea. Yeah, but I mean, COVID is no longer uh, uh, as death, as uh, deadly as it was. So that's, I mean, that's that's really what people care about. And monkeypox is not as easily transmittable, uh, at least if if recent reports are accurate. So so that's, I think people, people, and of course, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, Japan Cuts is banking or the Japan Society is banking on the condition being even less dangerous next year, right? 2023, I'm assuming it is the summer of 2023. Yeah, it's uh, summer of 2023. So yeah, um, disappointment if you're looking forward to Japan cuts, but uh, you know, stay tuned. Um, and hopefully next year they'll be back. Yeah, but again, it's not, it's not about just the pandemic for me. It's about you know, this availability of, of this entire... And again, it is, it is partially a selfish request because I am someone who would like to sort of be able and I'm happy to pay for them of course uh, for these festivals but I don't necessarily have the time uh, or resources to attend them in person yeah there's um, prior to the pandemic um, people weren't really talking about the availability of um, press screenings outside of like major cities Um, with the pandemic people were able to watch things virtually and um, that conversation is still going on. And uh, as I said earlier, people are really disappointed that these press screenings um, and like virtual theatre options are being taken off the table. So uh, we can only wait and see what the big organisation is going to do. Um, hopefully, like they'll still include press screenings. Uh, we've talked about this before in previous episodes. A lot. And, and it's okay to continue talking about it because I think it's an important issue. And maybe perhaps someone that is... Uh, that has some authority or some some control over this perhaps can listen and and maybe uh, at least take take the suggestions. But I do think that it is you know I I can see again perhaps they are intentionally making this to preserve the theatrical experience. But on the other hand, it is an inevitability that streaming is going to become the dominant form of media consumption. If it has already become the dominant form of media consumption for movies and TV series, and yeah, video games are moving in that direction as well. Exactly. So if the theatrical experience is going to suffer, I, I really hope it doesn't disappear. Like I, and I'm I'm happy to give up some concessions uh, for the give up some some comfort for the theatrical experience remain. But it also I also cannot pretend like the streaming is not going to take over eventually. Uh, but anyway, yeah. anyway, it is, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So after that, we can jump into the main discussion of today's episode. And as I mentioned in the introduction, that is Joni Toe's 1999 film, The Mission. So Jason, why don't you give us a plot summary of the film? So The Mission, not to be confused with the Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro movie set in South America. Uh, The Hong Kong movie, uh, The Mission, centers on a group of underworld figures hired to protect a triad godfather named Mr. Lung after he comes under threat from assassins. The group consists of Curtis, 
a hitman who works as a hairdresser when he's not killing people, a pimp named Mike, a gun dealer named James, Roy, a bar owner, and his young sidekick, Shin. We watch the team engage in rivalries, downtime, firefights, and more as the hitmen try to take out their employer. So the cast includes Anthony Wong as Curtis, Francis Ng as Roy, Jackie Chung as Shin, Roy Chung as Mike, Suet Lam as James, and uh, Simon Yam and Eddie Ko are the guys who hired them. Okay, uh, thank you for that summary, Jason. So the opening question, I think, for today's discussion would be, what is your history with this film? And maybe what is your history with Johnny Toe in general? So I've only watched uh, like three or four Johnny Toe films. The Mission was my first one. I watched it when it was broadcast on a uh, satellite channel called CNX in the early 2000s. And I was a teenager back then. And uh, I found it a really odd exercise in subverting genre. I could see what it was trying to do, but I like, couldn't quite articulate um what it was like the language it was playing with like but at that time i'd already watched um things like hard-boiled but you didn't you don't need to watch films like that to see um like it's subverting the crime genre you could watch something like heat and understand what it's doing and uh i didn't love it but it always stayed on my mind and um each subsequent rewatch once before i went to live in japan and then a couple months after i returned to the uk i um i really started finding more about uh from the film especially like um, Johnny Toe, what he does for foreshadowing plot twists and um, admiring what he cuts out of the film um, that what you know other filmmakers might ordinarily leave it in to make it like a really lean experience that relies on the audience to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, it's got really great action set pieces. I've always felt like the action set pieces were the highlights. And the ensemble cast, um, led by Anthony Wong, just fantastic. So over the years, I've, I've grown to love it more and more. So my experience is similar, uh, that I've only seen a handful of Johnny Toe films, but I was surprised that I had not seen this one. So this was a first-time watch for me. I thought I had, but I hadn't. And I think the reason is because Johnny Toe has never been a, a director that I have been very strongly drawn to. And actually, I forgot to mention this in the media consumption, but I rewatched a few Johnny Toe films in addition to The Mission. Uh, so I watched Election, I watched uh, PTU, those are the ones, and The Mission. Uh, and I, I sort of watching PTU and Election sort of confirmed my, not necessarily dislike, because I still think those are quality movies, but they're just not, there's something about it that is just never, never appealed to me. He always seems like a toned down version of other directors. And I know that he has a specific style and specific realism that are unique to him, but I don't know, for some reason, PTU... In terms of sort of like the characters, not not the direction, not the technical aspect, which is what Johnny Toe sort of has admitted in interviews that his focus is primarily, and he usually leaves the screenwriting and the character development either to the actors, to his you know like studio, and particularly to his frequent co-producer and collaborator, Wai um, Kai Fai. Is that his name? Yeah. Right, and he like he he leaves that to him, and he mostly focuses on sort of like the direction and the technical aspects of the film, which is admittedly a master of. However, watching the mission, there's something different about this film. It was sort of an instant love for me. I I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Not only what you said about subverting the genre, which he does very well, and we can talk about whether or not this is part of the same even genre that movies like Hard Boiled or The Killer are. Uh, like you said, but he also seems he's a master of misdirection in this film. 
there's so much of it and it's it never you think on paper if i described it to someone to like a screenwriting student they'd say oh no that's bad that there's too much misdirection the audience will get tired of it but it doesn't because he does it so well that it is and we'll talk about all the misdirection that he does and how well it works but it's it's so well and i just i don't know and i i still hold my view that i i'm i'm not a fan of him as a director i there there i'm a fan of him as a person i think he's He's admirable for sticking with Hong Kong, uh, with Hong Kong cinema. Well, when a lot of ho- prominent Hong Kong directors have moved to China, uh, he's actually he's even on record bad mouthing the, the Chinese Communist Party. Not nothing major, but saying saying mildly negative things about it, which is takes a lot of courage from a, a director who even even though he works in Hong Kong, still depends on the CPR. Uh, CP. Wait, what's the CCP. CCP. Ah, yeah. Forgot the abbreviation yet. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, I think he's made, he's, and he continues to make quality movies, even though movies that don't necessarily appeal to me. But there's something about the mission that is just excellent in so many ways. Yeah. It's, it's a clear and concise film that doesn't waste any time. And it treats audiences with respect. And it's kind of like, you, uh, you mentioned misdirection. There are like details that you can miss first time around that have major importance to the plot, but you can miss them and it still makes sense anyway. I would like to to jump straight ahead with uh, the topic or the aspect of this film that I found most fascinating, and that is the boss, Mr. Lung, or Mr. Hung. Wait, is it Mr. Hung or Lung? Uh, Lung. Lung, okay. I kept calling him Mr. Hung. Uh, anyway, tell me your first impressions of him and I'll, I'll, I'll then I'll reveal where I'm going with it because I think this is the most fascinating aspect of the film and Johnny told us something I don't know if it's the script or if it's him there's obviously he's uh, I read a lot about him and the way he works is with often unfinished scripts or scripts that are sort of like not necessarily in their final form and are constantly revising throughout the shoot so it's obviously a collaboration between the screenwriter which is usually Y Kai Fai and the team at Milky Way Studios yeah, so um, Mr. Lung is played by Eddie Ko, who's like a long-time actor who's appeared in like many, many martial arts movies, um, including um, like The Bride with White Hair and The Butterfly Murders. And uh, he takes the archetypical role of like um, the old or the aging gang boss, um, seems like he's on his way out and the assassin's going to hurry him off his mortal coil. And uh, like he disappears halfway through the film, essentially. And... Um, uh, I like he seems like the older brother character who's um, going to sort of like uh, try and look after his charges, but essentially, like uh, I, uh, I'm guessing that he, maybe you're suggesting he's like a metaphor for Hong Kong. No, no. Although I mean, <laughs> I, I, that that's possible. Uh, what I would suggest is that he is the most despicable character in the film. Okay. There is some conjecture on my part here because I think the film the film implies it, and, and I don't think he's necessarily. I think his sort of like character could be partially a metaphor, uh, but he uh, he struck me watching the film that he is too nice, right? I mean, he the the for for the entire maybe first seventy percent of the film, he's entirely too nice to I think to the point that it appears a little bit over the top. 
uh, and I think only in the final part, in sort of like the final arc of the film, which all almost feels like it's a restart there, right? It feels like the main mission is done. That's where the film should end. But there's like another another part that involves Shin, the younger member of the crew, having an alleged, not an alleged, because I think it's pretty much confirmed. Yeah, he confesses to it. That's right. Another brilliant thing about the film, he never actually explicitly says it. We all, it's all show, don't tell with this film. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like uh, they spent way too long outside and uh, uh, Francis Young's character, Roy, tweaks that something's gone on. He sniffs like uh, a shin shirt. It's a small small bit in like the foreground of the scene. You might miss it. Yeah, but even in the end, when they finally confront, they ask him, he just kind of kneels and cries, right? He never actually outright says it. Yeah. And Roy's like, yeah, she tried it on with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, the, as typical it is in Johnny Tall films, and not only Johnny Tall, but a lot of gangster films, is female roles have have very little to nothing to contribute. They're generally means to an end for the plots or the characters, right? Yeah, I think that um, like some characters in his other films, like some female characters directly comment on it, like, uh, oh, you'll do more for your brothers than you'll do for the women in your life, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And in, in PTU, they're essentially... Female, the female characters are only there to nag the male characters because they don't get them. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Johnny Toe films are all about like the brotherhood of the gun. Or... Exactly, exactly. But going back to Mr. Lung, um, there is, I, it only occurred to me, and I rewatched it just to see if the feeling would still stick, and it stuck with me. And I'm not saying maybe this was intentional, maybe this is just my personal interpretation, but it is, there's something interesting about the point of view that the first 75 percent of the film is the point of view of the Mr. Lung. And not necessarily the point of view of Mr. Lung in the traditional sense of point of view that we see we see things through his eyes or through his perspective. It's more about it's his story, right? It is the story of protecting him. He is the hero of that story. He is the protagonist. The protagonist in the sense that he drives the action. Not the main character, but the the driver of the action. So he he must necessarily appear a uh, appear good in order to justify the action of the five main characters in this film, which are the 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 what we're really interested in in their friendship, in their relationships, in their actions. And I think it's only in that like final twenty to twenty five percent of the film that we step out outside, and now we're telling the story centered on these characters. Now these are the protagonists, and it is their actions that drive the story. And I think in that twenty twenty percent we really see Mr. Lung for someone who is, for who he really is. And he's really not the nice guy that we've kind of been led to believe in the first part of the film. He's just some guy who is entirely used to manipulating other people and won't hesitate to kill them what needs to. There's no hesitation to kill his wife. There's no hesitation to kill Fat Frank or whatever it is, the, the guy who took out the head on him. Yeah. And it's almost a throwaway line what he says. He says, before he dies, he says, we worked our asses off for this organization and we don't get to run it now. And I think that is meant to carry the weight off sort of saying that Mr. Long is not the loved, the beloved character that, that we may think he is if you're in his presence all the time. He gives money to, to that one guy that sort of he finds as a cleaner, right? But he, the result is that he kind of throws himself in front of the boss and he dies. And he's just, it's interesting how the camera just lingers on him for like maybe unusually long. 
as the as everybody else leaves, and they completely forgot him, forgotten him. Nobody goes to help him. Nobody goes to drag him out of the scene. He's just there, bleeding to death, right? Yeah. Uh, and then if if you go even further back, he's actually suffocated, right? Intentionally suffocated for not helping, not helping the boss, which sounds normal and sounds like uh, you know perhaps what happens in the gang to war. But then if you step, you you probably it is Mister Long that gave those orders for him. Is it Mr. Lung or is it his brother Frank? Yes. So I think that's another interpretation that someone may be drawn to, but I think that's another misdirection of the film. Because it towards the end, and again, there's the, this movie requires you uh, requires many times to add two and two together. It never spells things out, but in the end, we see that Mr. F- Frank, his brother, is actually very often coming from meetings from Mr. Lung and is giving orders after he's met with Mr. Lung. And there's that one scene in the end where he, Mr. Lung says, go, go and talk to him and tell him to come over. Tell him to come here. And then Frank says, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't want to come? And then Mr. Lung goes silent and then the scene cuts. We don't get to hear his answer. And I think that is meant to imply that it is Mr. Lung who's pulling the strings from the background. He just doesn't, he's never, he's never the one to get his hands dirty. He never wants to appear the bad guy. Uh, probably uh, there's, uh, there's a cinematic statement that Johnny Toe is making here about what sort of someone chooses to show in front of someone else. So in, in some many ways, the characters are metaphors of the filmmaking process. But I do think that that is meant to show us that it is Mr. Lunk who's pulling the strings behind the scene, not his brother Frank. His brother Frank is just carrying the orders and he's, he's the one who gets his hand dirty. Dirty, while Mr. Lung is the one that says, "Oh, you know, it's I deserve to die," or whatever it is that he says at some point that I've I I knew this was coming or something else. The final thirty minutes, um, like everything turns, and that's when the characters actually have to break the codes of conduct of the underworld and sort of like uh, decide whether they'll like protect themselves or just go along with Mr. Lung's orders. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think Frank can kill Mr. Lung's wife without Mr. Lung ordering. I think that's a line that Frank would just never cross, right? Yeah. And I think that's the realization that James has because the film gives so many hints towards it because James, they've, they, they all believe that Mr. Lung is the nicest guy. Like, they even wonder, why would anyone kill Mr. Lung? There's that discussion that they have, I think, right like around the time where they have the trick cigarettes, right? Hmm. Uh, uh, in that scene, and someone asks, "Why would anyone want to kill Mr. Lang?" As implying, just he's such a nice guy, he's such a good boss, he's such a fair boss. And in the end, James says, "You know, right before was the final misdirection where uh, Curtis pretends to kill. Spoiler alert: Curtis pretends to kill Shin." James says, "Just let me go and talk to Mr. Lung. I know he will understand. I know that he will listen to compassion and will show compassion, and he will." understand that this was just a youthful indiscretion and then we can move from this. You can see it in his face, right? No words are said, but you can see it that he really hopes. And then there's that final scene where he passes on, he sees Mrs. Lung go into the car, get shot. And then again, again, the camera, he does the same thing. The camera just lingers on James. And where like, it's very clear that he has some kind of realization that hope is lost. It's just, it is. And I think that is meant to signify that there's just no point to talking to Mr. Lang. Mr. Lang is not Mr. Lang is not who they thought he was. He was he ordered this assassination of his wife just as he will not forgive Shin for it. It's just that we are past the point of no return. I think that's I think there's a lot of support for sort of 
Mr. Long being the ultimate misdirection of this film. Well, uh, now that you've laid it out like that, I'm, I'm actually quite convinced because like the killing of the wife, it's just shocking. It is, yes. And it is shocking how he lingers. Like Again, the camera shows it all. That's why I think Johnny Toy is sort of master of technique in terms of... And he even said in an interview, he said that I, I really started to understand filmmaking and camera work when I made the mission. Yeah. And I think this is what he's talking about, using using these subtle visual hints to tell a story beyond what dialogue can. It's just like when that cleaner got shot, the camera just stays on the car and then everybody goes about their functions. Um, there's like no, no tears shed over the person who suffered because of Mr. Lung. Exactly, exactly. Except the camera. The camera is the only one who sheds a tear for him. Yeah. And I think that is a sort of a, a, almost a meta statement. Uh, the same thing for the wife and it's kind of like uh, uh, doubling or mirroring just what happened earlier in the film which is uh, something that uh, Johnny Toe likes to do yeah and it's it, exactly and it's so I mean that shot is so heartbreaking because you see the the thugs right the thugs that are res- the two underlings that are responsible for killing Mrs. Lung yeah and they have this sort of just like as the camera lingers on James they have this sort of like eye to eye that it's uh, that there's no like you would expect normal that maybe James would run away or he would try to stop it right or yeah. or the the underlings would maybe try to kill him because he's a witness or something but no because there's that like revelation that epiphany that understanding there at the end that okay you've seen behind the curtain this is how this world works yeah there are no nice guys in this world and this is when the team have to decide uh, if they'll fight for each other or not. Exactly, precisely. Which, which is, in, in a sense, they've already decided, right? Curtis has already decided that. And I think in many ways, Curtis knew. Curtis knew, where, where even before James, when James said that I'm going to convince Mr. Lang, Curtis knew that no, because he's the oldest, he's been around, he knows what's up. Yeah, he's part of Mr. Lung's team beforehand. Exactly. So you mentioned the mall scene. Uh, no, well, not, not, not that mall scene where the cleaner dies, but the one before that, uh, and that's, and I even, even though I had not seen this movie, I was familiar with that scene. I had seen that before because it's a very famous scene from this movie. And it's, there's a lot of, did you find a lot of similarities with Kitano's style in, in, in how sort of Thor chooses to display his action scenes? It's uh, like, I've seen um, references to Sonatine where the characters will just stand and shoot at each other. There's no like uh, reaction, just shoot and like some people will die. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it's it's so static. But yet, uh, unlike I think the difference, the deviation between Kitano is that here the camera moves a lot. Oh yeah, there's a lot of gliding movements, lots of dollies, and um, lots of panning and uh, slow zooms as well. It's just probably the most energetic uh, point in any of these gunfights is the camera work and the editing. Absolutely, and how he plays with the reflections, especially like reflections on that uh, cleaning cart that the one janitor who turns out to be an assassin a, an assassin right is seeing the 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 reflections over the 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 stairs right yeah the you escalator see the assailants um yeah that was such a fun tongue in cheek moment this guy with like uh, uh like headphones on and a walkman and uh, he doesn't look like an assassin at all he looks like he could be a member of the production team he just wanders into this gunfight Exactly, exactly. No, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant that everything moves except our protagonists, right? The camera moves, the reflections moves, the, the, es- the stairs, the escalator moves, the bad guys move, of course. 
but there's there's not a protagonist. It's it's almost like the choreography, the anti choreography, right? The choreography of the surroundings, but not of the protag of the main characters. Well, this is counter to like the maximalist cinema of um, John Woo, like uh, A Better Tomorrow or Hard Boiled or The Killer, which we've covered, where everybody's running around, guns are going off, and uh, explosions and like people are being mown down. And Johnny Toe is capable of doing these sorts of films. He's like done full-time killers and um, with Andy Lau. Uh, uh, here, he's just really, really restrained. And um, like tension ratchets up as you're watching these guys. You realize they've entered this really professional space uh, where they've like attained like this zen-like um, existence where they're one with the gun and they're one with each other and they're able to sort of control themselves even though there's a lot of violence threatening to happen yeah i mean it's 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 funny because i think it's funny how i think this has to do with his upgrading like i mentioned in in the beginning uh coincidentally i mentioned Quallon walled city and that's where i think johnny toe grew up and he's you know it's it's like supposedly there was a lot of crime there and I think he probably learned the lesson that death and violence are not climactic, they're anticlimactic. They're quiet, they're, you know, in a world where violence is commonplace, you know, death and injury are not noteworthy, right? Yeah, there's nothing cinematic about any of the deaths here. Exactly. And I think that's interesting compared to someone else who grew up in a lot of violence, and that's Kinji Fukasaku. Hmm. In a lot of his gangster film, death is also perhaps anticlimactic, but it is very chaotic. There's, mm. you know, like he pioneered the the camera shake techniques and documentary like techniques to sort of show this sort of realism and 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 hard hitting sort of chaotic nature of violence. Uh, and I think that probably reflects his upbringing to a different kind of violence than perhaps Johnny Toe's upbringing to maybe like this more more banal type of violence but is it also a case that they're reacting to like um directors and um films that have come before so i mean that, that that's that's certainly a case yes i think that's a case. that's that's also a, a a combination of factors yes yeah so since you mentioned it do you think this film fits into the heroic bloodshed genre Absolutely. Like the heroic bloodshed genre has its sort of roots in like martial arts movies and like um, Jiang Hu and the like sort of um, underworld or separate world that um, wandering heroes and uh, like martial artists have uh, where they've got codes of honor and uh, brotherhoods formed and um, they have to show loyalty to each other and uh, the mission is full of it. Um, It's got violence and uh, and uh, all the themes that you would expect. It just subverts it stylistically. That's an interesting point. I, you're right, the code of honor is there, but it's not, it's not as melodramatic as it is in, say, John Woo films. Yeah, or even this Ringo is... Lamb films, who, who we've already talked about, and we said that he's, he's a more realistic version of John Woo, but he's still very melodramatic. Yeah, City on Fire, School on Fire, like... Um... School or School on Fire is really interesting because it's like very realistic in parts, but then towards the end it gets hyper melodramatic. Exactly, exactly. And those, 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 that's is in my sort of head canon the sort of like the signature move of of uh, heroic bloodshed. There's always ends with a final big shootout. Yeah, this is like they're playing to audiences uh, at raucous screenings who want big dramatic action scenes. Uh, Johnny's hoes like, yeah, I'm going in a different direction. 
Yeah, but this is more like if Hitchcock made heroic bloodshed, right? Because it's all about the tension. The tension... Or Jean-Pierre Melville. Or Jean-Pierre Melville, that's right. Yeah, that's probably a better comparison. Of the tension of the pending violence, not the tension of the ex- actual violence. Yeah. It's kind of like Le, Le Samurai. Yes, it's been forever since I've seen that, but you're probably right, yes. Yeah, though, there's massive tension, like, just having characters stand still while they're assassins about, and, like, the occasional gunfight going off. And, like, the sound design in that sequence is fantastic because the guns roar like cannons, and then there's, like, this lingering sound like a jet engine from a plane flying overhead. And then you've got, like, these, like, the camera dollying around, getting close to the actors' uh, faces as they're, like, in these intense uh, moments of concentration. It's just, like, fantastic translating just how um, uh, into the scene they are. Yeah, or the sound of the uh, bullet hitting the cars. Like, the ting. That's, I mean, that's, yeah, you're right. The sound design is very well. And that's, often people forget about sound in films. They focus on the visual aspect. But sound design is also very very crucial to the experience overall when you yeah when action when like the visual stuff is dialed down and you notice like the sound design um becoming more prominent yeah however going back to sort of the original question there's still i think some significant differences between this and sort of i don't know what i typically consider the heroic bloodshed which is again the melodrama and the excessive gunfights the Excessive, which is, they don't exist here. I mean, first of all, there are very few gunfights in sort of overall for a film that is meant to be in a heroic bloodshed genre. There's also not that much bloodshed. I mean, a lot of the deaths are off screen, right? Uh, Yeah, or in the background. Yes, that's right. Like, for instance, even the executions, like the killing, uh, and, and I mean, this might be a budget thing because this was around the time that Johnny Toe had just had just uh, formed his company, and they hadn't been that commercially successful yet, uh, the Milky Way Productions. So I think perhaps budget was, you know, not, not as great. I mean, this film was shot in 18 days, right? It was a very quick affair as a way to create something that is quality, but also cheap and, and possibly profitable for them. Yeah, and they had sort of like um, renowned actors, but not sort of like superstars like Andy Lau. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, but, for example, the, when they execute the, the killer, when they finally catch him in that building showdown, right? Yeah. About, you know, three-fourths of the movie in. And they, they don't, we don't actually see him killed. I think there's a, we see from, we, he's shown from the back, and we focus, I think, on um, Anthony Wong shooting the gun. Same thing with the, the fat Frank. What's his name? Fat Uncle Frank or something. Uh, I'll have to look it up. He's, he's in a bunch of, he's in a bunch of, uh, Johnny Toe films, and he always is fat something. Fat Chung. He was a director himself. Interesting. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Uh, but he, we don't actually see him getting shot. We see the Frank shooting the gun, right? That's how the angle. So, but yeah, well, in a lesser film, he would be shot. Uh, like he's eating like noodles or spaghetti. Like in a lesser film, he would be shot, and then he would just fall face first into the spaghetti. But here, he just continues eating. That's not. Yeah, and we don't. We don't actually see. I mean, we. We hear and we see the gun shooting, but we actually see him getting shot, which is very unheroic bloodshed type. Like, oh, that's uh, why I, when one ahead. of the assassins gets killed, like you're 
you're much more aware of uh, Roy sort of covering his ears and like dancing around because of the sound of gunfire is too loud for him. Or when there's that st- in the mall scene again, was that static shot of what's the guy with a uh, blonde hair, blondish hair, so light brown hair. So Mike, uh, the pimp, the pre- pretty, but the pimp. That's right. We mostly see him shooting the gun. There's that impressive wide angle where he's kind of ha- holding the gun at an angle towards the camera. And yeah, we see also the other guys in the background. He it's fires it the... twice and there's a cut. Yes, but, but we don't see so much the other people getting shot, right? We get a sh- an interesting shot of the main guy, the main assassin, right? Who's, who's sort of like key. He's present in all assassination attempts. Yeah, and a uh, Japanese actor, um, if I can find his name, Okeiji Sato. But um, yeah, like to your point, like um, the like you'll always enter a gunfight after it's erupted, and you see it like bodies on the floor, or you'll like someone will get shot, but then it'll be like um, in, instead of seeing the actual shooting, instead of seeing like squibs go off, it'll be like um, the aftermath of someone being shot, like them holding their hands and blood pouring, uh, dripping down. It's never like the 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 money shot, so to speak, that people expect from hero, uh, heroic bloodshed movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and going back to my my point about sort of the mis- original point about sort of the misdirection of Mister Long, it's 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 always kind of suspect. Meaning the point of view that I think the this the the first part of this film is very much from the point of view of Mister Long as the protagonist from yeah. Mister Long's sort of team. That there's this very determined assassin to kill him, but we never get their story. We never get their side. But only hints are given until the very end where we, uh, Fat Chung is finally says that almost throwaway line about it. And there's this determined, you know, why, like, you, it's, it's a very natural question to us. Why are these people so determined to kill? You know, don't, you know, you, you attempted a hit on Mr. Lung. Uh, he beefed up security and that's it. You failed the hit. You move on. Like, it seems there's just the, the entire movie is consistently trying and trying and trying. And they, it seems that they won't give up their assassination attempt. So there's someone who really hates Mr. Lung, who really despises him. And it seems sort of like, it seems personal. I think you can infer that it is personal. It's not just business as usual. Mm. So you weren't satisfied with Fat Chung's answer, that, um, well, his confession, that oh, I just resent your family for taking over. Oh, no, I think I, I am satisfied with that answer. I think, I, think, I think there's a lot of that. What I'm saying is there's, it's, it, they probably took over in, dishonest ways hmm. they they employ manipulation and dishonest ways as money which is very much ungangster like and this uh, untried like uh, unhonorable and this is much made much more of a point in election where the one guy with the money is sort of like defying the ways of the of the triad and the traditions because it's not supposed to be about the money ultimately. i suppose that puts it uh, amidst other sort of gangster films or Yakuza films where it's like money supersedes sort of old-fashioned um, brawn and blades and guns. I, I think so, yeah. And I think this is more akin to a Yakuza film than it is to a heroic bloodshed film. Although it certainly... And that's what I'm, I can't decide. Is this a heroic bloodshed that is playing with a genre? Or is this a different type of gangster film that is mistaken as a heroic bloodshed film? Because of, you know, that just... Hong Kong, therefore it must be Hong Kong against us, therefore it must be heroic bloodshed. Yeah. That's that's what I can't quite make my mind of. I think there is like so many heroic bloodshed elements to it. I, I uh, like to me it's Johnny Toe playing 
with the genre. But I, t- I think you've got a good point, though. I have a very specific image of what a heroic bloodshed is, particularly ta- uh, driven by John Woo, that I perhaps am dismissing maybe more variation on the heroic bloodshed genre that are sort of uh, that are present in Hong Kong cinema that I'm maybe not as familiar with. Yeah. And this is definitely not a John Woo heroic bloodshed. We can agree, at least we can agree as that much. Yeah. This is doing everything it can to subvert your expect or to subvert the genre itself. Yeah, misdire- misdirections in all regard. Yeah, there's no, there's no, like no scenes of uh, massive, like masses of exposition. Like, uh, oh yep, we're brothers in arms. Uh, like, uh, no Chow Yun Fat or Danny Lee back to back fighting off loads of people. <laughs> it's just really exactly. lean and efficient. Exactly. It's it's interesting. Speaking, going back to Johnny Toll a little bit, I read uh, I read an interview with him claiming, and this is just his word, of course, but claiming that he could have gone to Hollywood like John Woo, like Ringo Lam, like other Hong Kong directors, but he chose not to. Um, was he supposed to direct a remake of a was it a Japanese film? I don't know. I I, I didn't read anything past his interview where he says he could, and I didn't know if that was. What he meant by that was, was there a specific offer on the table, like you're saying? Like there was a specific offer from a Hollywood to come and direct this film? Was it just more of a general thing that he could have, like there was, you know, he was having discussions and he could have if he pursued it more? Like at what stage was his invitation to Hollywood, basically? Yeah, like that was around the time uh, when loads of Hollywood, uh, um, Hong Kong directors like Ringo Lam and John Woo were taking heroic bloodshed to Hollywood. Yeah, and that's why I sort of feel bad for not really liking his films that much because he is, you know, sort of a part of a dying breed, right? Part of the directors who have remained loyal to Hong Kong. Of course, a lot of his films are Chinese co-production, and that's, you know, that's inevitable, of course. Hong Kong is part of China, so there's going to be Chinese, and that's probably a good thing that Chinese money is for being funded into Hong Kong cinema. But it is, he has remained, you know, a quintessential Hong Kong director among very few, like uh, uh, Johnny Cho and Hui. Uh, what? Who else is there that is still making Hong Kong, like a classic director that is still making Hong Kong films? I guess Ringo Lam was making them before he died. He could have been part of that. Wong Kar Wai has gone mainland. Wong Kar Wai uh, has gone mainland. Jackie Chan obviously has gone mainland. Uh, what's his... Uh, Stephen Chow has gone mainland. Uh, uh, what's uh, the... Benny Chan has gone mainland. Troy Hark has gone mainland. Yeah, well, all, all the big directors, that's right. Whereas Johnny Toy is the one that is trying to fight for Hong Kong cinema and its admitted decline of Hong Kong cinema, which is sort of a thing that we've brought up in this podcast a lot. It is, yeah. for, for a variety of factors, starting in the early 2000s, Hong Kong cinema has seen a sort of a decline. Yeah. Uh, and Johnny Toy has spoken about that and he's sort of kind of put the blame on China a little bit. Which is, I found it funny that someone, someone like him, could openly speak negatively. It wasn't like a major negative comment. I forget exactly what his words were, but in some of the interviews that I read, he seemed to sort of imply that China has treated Macau better than they've treated Hong Kong in the merger, uh, which is an interesting thing to say. He's also spoken bad about the British, though, so it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's... <laughs> uh, although he did say that, despite. You can say anything about the British; they never censored us. I think he was his word. So that, which is, I think, reasonable praise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the British 
up until Chris Patton sort of took a, a would would you say they took a hands off approach to um, Hong Kong? So I'm not an expert. My understanding, what I've always read, and I uh, the there's sort of two versions. There's the Chinese version of of Brit- Hong Kong under British colonial rule, and there's the Western version of of Hong Kong under British rule. And I tend to believe the Western version a little bit more because at least independent historians who can publish uh, their their results, their studies uh, without being censored, censored, are more likely in the in the West. And I think the the story that both sides say is that the the British under Hong Kong were never free, were never a democracy, right? Yeah, they didn't allow they didn't allow elections until Chris Patton, the final governor, and that was a couple of years before the handover. However, uh, the 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 story is that what I've read, and again, take this with a grain of salt because it's not like I've I've researched the uh, the this the history extensively. Is that the reason why the British never allowed uh, uh, elections in Hong Kong was because of Chinese pressure and fear that China would attack them if they did because they wanted to keep the pretense the pretense that Hong Kong was a colony, not an independent state. It was all, I've, I've read it's also partly the fear that if they allowed elections so that people in Hong Kong might actually vote for communist parties because there were riots throughout Hong Kong's history. Um, a pro um, mainland China uh, forces sort of um, instigating um, um, sort of riots on the in the colony, and like that's another possible thing. I'm I'm certain it is, but there have been a lot of anti-communist propaganda by the British and the Americans in Hong Kong to try to keep them sort of to keep communist ideology unfriendly. I yeah. don't know that there was ever a risk that Hong Kong would vote for the communists should election be. Uh, there were sort of a specific, I think in 1952 or 1951, there was a specific plan, which has had a name, Operation something, to actually allow Hong Kong to vote half the assembly, which is what ended up being by, what was, um, was the final governor's name? Chris, uh, Patton, Chris Patton. Which is, Chris Patton, which is what he ended up doing, but that was a plan in 1951 or something like that, and China said, no way. Uh, or no, and it would have been sort of a limited suffrage, not 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 democracy in the sense that perhaps UK has or the US has. Yeah, but a, a limited scale. But it was it was China was adamant against it. So that's that's the story that I have, and that sort of and John Toe has been has spoken about this, uh, but he said that regardless of that, we there was never censorship before before or after. However, there was censorship in sort of like the depiction of gangsters. Yeah. Uh, in Hong Kong until what was the three rating systems that was established in the late 80s, which allowed allowed even more freedom in the films, provided that you gave them the correct rating. And, and rating of of Johnny Toe's film was sort of the equivalent of an NC-17 or an R or hard R rating in you know, that we have in the West. Would you say that the film that helped popularize gangster genre was uh, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow? I don't know, because I think that would have been considered an extremely unrealistic depiction of crime, of, of, of the triads. I don't, I don't think that deals with the triads. That's just a crime film, right? Yeah. Uh, I suppose there are, the, like, there are, I can't remember any big details about the triads in it, like money laundering. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that would have been considered a 
particularly accurate depiction of 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 crim, criminal activity in Hong Kong. Although you might be right in the sense that it popularized the crime as a genre, which yeah. could then later evolve into what Johnny Todd did in the nineties. Hmm. It's an interesting thing. Like uh, the last season, we talked about um, the nineties as being a very important time for cinema, Asian cinema, and um, one of the uh, things one of the drivers of um, how productions were made was the asian financial crisis and um johnny toe's films like compared to like uh john woo's like extravaganzas action extravaganzas uh, um like this one's really toned down you can see like the budget's really small i think you wrote like it was three hundred thousand dollars uh yes according to one article that i read and uh, yeah, and um, Johnny Toe has Actually, a the background. Book, the the book that you sent about Hong Kong cinema, uh, um, Planet Hong Kong. Yes, that one. That I, that's where I read it. That this film was shot in eighteen days with a three hundred thousand dollar budget. Yeah, uh, Planet Hong Kong. David Baldwell. We'll have to include a link to that. Um, uh, but sure. uh, uh, yeah, but like this is a film like directly from that situation and it seems like i've watched a couple of um johnny toe films from that time period and they are like kind of like low budget affairs he's got this sort of minimalist um style to him and it uh i don't know maybe it goes back to his tv his background in tv where he's just like able to shoot on low budgets yeah and it's worth noting that while in the west his crime films are the most popular he's a very prolific director and a very diverse director as well, who's done films of all kinds of genre, including romantic comedies and musicals. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised to find he did Love on a Diet, which has like um, Andy Lau and Sammy Chang in fat suits. <laughs> yeah, and I think in general, as it is unsurprising with a lot of this market, I'm sure it is true for Chinese cinema, Japanese cinema, South Korean cinema, those are the movies that tend to make the most money domestically, even though they don't really get exported outside of... Uh, outside of their maybe Asia or something like that. Yeah, it's um local audiences like those in Hong Kong, like the big New Year um uh comedies. Uh and Johnny Toes made some of those. Um The Mission was probably like the film that made him. Um I've read the like well I can remember at the in the early two thousands it's like the mission came out and then there's a lot of interest and then people started looking at election and um PTU. Yeah, so it was the film that put him, that made him aware or put him on the map of Western critics. But in terms of commercial success, if I remember what I read, it was not very commercially successful. None of his crime films have been particularly successful. With I think Election was the one that was reasonably successful commercially. Oh, what about um, Running Out of Time with Andy Lau? Oh, that may too. I haven't seen that one, but that sounds like one of those that was commercially successful. It, yeah, it's a, it's a fun film. It's a fun film. Okay, is it a gangster film? It's kind of like uh, Andy Lau plays a guy with a terminal illness who ropes a cop into this Byzantine plot to uh, steal uh, a, a diamond, essentially. And he's got like a few days to do it. And um, like there's a, a lot of comedy. Um, and uh, I think Andy Lau won his like first Best Actor Award uh, from Hong Kong Film Awards for his role in that. But yeah, you can see Andy Lau cross-dressing in that if, uh, if you're interested. Okay. Speaking of which, there's also a lot of comedy in the mission, right? Or there's just, you know, lighthearted moments. I was, while I was watching it, I, I felt like this is like uh, the samurai, but done with a sense of humor. 
Yeah, ex- no, that's right. And also, the music sometimes feels like sitcom music. Oh, that cheesy synthesizer music. Oh, yeah, jumpy, like a step to it, right? That it yeah. kind of feels. At first, you might think it feels out of place, but I think it actually fits well with sort of like the themes of friendship that are sort of centered to this movie. Yeah, I talked about the 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 mall shootout being one famous scene that you might have be familiar with if you're familiar with Hong Kong cinema, even if you have not seen this film. Another equally, or not maybe not as big, but reasonably big, is the soccer, the little football game with a paper ball that they play oh, in the office. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. While waiting, that's also very well known, and that's a very sort of like a highlight of this film. Yeah, uh, and it is a very fun film. It is a it, it again. It's it's a brilliant way to kind of show the status of their friendship and the evolution from virtually five unknown people meeting for a mission and sort of like connecting to a level that is does not need to be expressed with dialogue. It can just a simple like scene like that is all you need to show. Going back to the minimalism that you mentioned, yeah, I, it, yeah, absolutely, it's great. Like when uh, there are different configurations of sort of um, friendship within the film, and it's always shifting. Like Curtis and James, they've known each other for a long time, and then you've got Shin and Roy, and then you've got Mike, who's in the middle, and his allegiances switch between the different groups, and like James switches from Curtis to Roy. Uh, but like in the moments of downtime, when you can see that um, they're really gelling together, it's, it's it's like done in such a way like it's very um, believable. And much more satisfying than like maybe like Tarantino would just put loads of dialogue in like uh, <laughs> you uh, like Le Grand Royale sort of uh, burger discussions. Yeah, which is it's 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 crazy to me that Tarantino would speak so highly of Johnny Toe and cite him as a major influence, which I can I can sort of see it, but it's also kind of also missed the point of of like what makes him sort of a, such technically excellent director. Yeah. Another another thing about the minimalism is sort of like again the ending with the sort of almost a double misdirection there where James let's sort of summarize this James is asked by Curtis to bring him a gun right and he seems to be the guy that does that 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 get, procures the weapons yeah and we see that and then James said there doesn't I don't think there's any point that he says I gave him a fake gun or a gun with blanks he just says they just ask him in the car when he meets up with Roy and the others later he says the gun is black. I gave it to him. Yeah. And it's implied that he gave him a fake gun, right? Yeah. Uh, but then we see that that then uh, Curtis is holding a silver gun. Yeah. It, again, it's kind of like if you're looking at the configurations of friendship, you know James is firmly on the side of Roy and Shin, and you're assuming that he set everything up. And then you realize when the silver gun's planted on the table, Curtis has sort of outplanned them all. Yeah, and it's also crazy how they don't mention it. They don't have like they don't have like a scene where they go to the bathroom and say, "Oh, did you see he switched the gun? What do we do now?" Or like, or at least like a coy response by James saying, "Oh, I see that you did not use my gun or something. Is anything wrong?" It's just it's all in the eyes. They just look at each other a couple of times, and that's it. That's really all you need to 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 know. And then they just say, "Let's eat this meal." And Roy puts the gun on the table. And they eat, and then we have what I said about James going to plead with Mr. Lung yeah. about uh, Shin's life. Yeah, it's just tremendous to have like a filmmaker place enough faith in the audience <laughs> to understand, and like the actors are so good that you can keep up with it. And I, I totally get when he's why he's saying 
of course, I haven't seen any films that he made before this, but I see what he means when he says, I really understood filmmaking in this film. And I, I can see that he's, he's essentially squeezing out of every trick of, fil- of, of camera work and editing to really drive the point across. Like, unlike any filmmaker that I've seen, especially in some of the scenes. Yeah, like there's uh, usually heavy reliance on scripts and like uh, exposition um, dialogue just to keep audiences in the loop as to how characters are developing. But it's just you, you, what the camera's looking at and how the actors are uh, acting. And it's just like the basics of cinema, essentially. Yeah. The, the, there were a couple of things that I didn't quite get, minor things. Like <laughs> the one thing that comes to mind was in the final confrontation with the assassins in the building, right before we see some guy getting shot in the head and it's like a split second shot. Uh, it's just the guy walking towards the warehouse. But who was that guy? Oh, he wasn't he one of the assassins from the second mall hit? Was he? I don't know. Like, I, I didn't get that. I didn't, I didn't really get that. So, like, uh, after Mr. Lung is pushed into the lift or the elevator, the assassin flees, gets into a car and drives away. And then, the, like, uh, Curtis and the gang... They get in their own cars and they follow and they are led to the sort of lair of the bad guys. And the guy, the assassin, gets out of the car and he's walking towards the warehouse. Then he gets shot in the head by his uh, co-conspirators. But why? I suppose it's kind of like you led them here. Oh, I, okay, I see. Okay, I just I took it as that. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure if there was something like else more, more tricky to understand or something. Okay. All right. Okay. That makes sense. I was, I didn't even see who that was. I couldn't, cause it was such a, he appears for such a brief amount of time. Yeah. Well, again, it's kind of like, uh, another filmmaker might have loads of dialogue about, Oh, how are we going to get the bad guys? And, uh, like, let's, uh, how are we going to chase them? And, uh, you're going to have an exciting car chase or whatever. This one is just like, yeah, we're going to follow him from point A to point B. Uh, it's going to be really low budget, and then we're going to engage in another low budget um, gunfight, which is going to be you know shot from long distances and yeah, not too much blood shown on screen. Uh, yeah. Uh, another another thing is uh, when um, when they finally you know defeat the assassins and they capture the main guy, then they very conveniently find like a, a like a business. I don't forget what that is. Just a business card or an advert for like yeah, the Super Bowl. Like a business card for Fat Chung's. Uh, American, yeah, which is a bit too you know too convenient, but I suppose it's just one of those ways that the plot needs to get from point A to point B. Uh, but it did it, it did seem a bit silly. I did take it that the like they like uh, Roy fishes it out of a plastic cup and it's partially burnt. So I took it that the assassins tried to burn evidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's still I I, I got that. It's still a bit too convenient. Yeah. Uh, presumably they've been in that building for a while, but. I don't know. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Again, it's kind of like this. Let's just do this as leanly and efficiently as possible. Let's get through this plot and then let's get on to the second part. Yeah, because they needed to get that. That's what I say. This is a, a like just a getting from point A. Yeah. Uh, to point to point B, and it's it's. I mean, it's it's also uh, going back to you know Johnny Toe's process. It is. I one thing. Uh, another thing I read is that he doesn't storyboard his movies. So it is amazing how visually precise this film feels with the knowledge that it, it wasn't, most likely it wasn't storyboarded. And it was only shot in 18 days. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that must, obviously, a credit goes to his cinematographer, which is, you wrote down the name, right? 
uh, what's his name, uh, Siu Kang Chang, frequent collaborator of uh, Johnny Toe, which is for a lot of them, for a lot of the actors, probably editors, etc. Hmm. Is uh, they're 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 the ones. I mean, he has a team and he sticks with it. But um, but yeah, it's it's you know shot in eighteen days, shot without a storyboard, probably without a complete script. I mean, it's it's the technical mastery that a director needs to have to sort of accomplish that. It is phenomenal, I think. Well, yeah. Let's bear in mind that he's been working since the eighties, uh, uh, first yeah. in television and then in film. Like uh, he made his first film in the mid seventies, actually seventies. I think seventies. Okay, was it? Uh, it was in TVB. Yes, that's right. So, so he became. I think he, in an interview, he says that he started in seventy two as an apprentice, and then seventy nine he got his first director director's job. Okay, something so like that. that. He's so, a yeah. contemporary of like Anhui. John Wu and uh, Choi Ha, like a lot of these, like a lot of these people that um, came in uh, TVB's um, sort of uh, came through TVB, went on to make Hong Kong New Wave, and uh, he started a bit later than the others he, um, uh, in terms of international recognition, at least. Yeah, and, and generally, perhaps you one can assume that he got trained a. That may have been part of his job of, you know, shooting things quickly, shooting things, you know, without that much planning, thinking yeah. on the spot, thinking on his feet. And that kind of perhaps translated into his established style when he became and, a film director. And different genres. So you can see why he's like able to make popular comedies. Yeah. And, and you can see, you know, like working on TV, uh, part of the production stuff, whatever role he had is... You know, you're much a, a director on 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 staff, right? We have this project, go do that. Then, uh, like half the day you work on that, and then the second half you work on that, and so forth. So it's it's a it's. I mean, it's great training. It's probably it was probably great training for everybody who worked there. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we go over a little bit the awards that this film won? Okay, so uh, in two thousands. It won Best Film and Best Director at the Hong Kong Film Critics Society Awards. At the Golden Horse Film Festival, it won Best Director, Best Leading Actor for Francis Ng. And it was nominated for Best Feature, Best Supporting Actor for Suet Lam. At the 2000 Hong Kong Film Awards, it won Best Director, uh, just that. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Suet Lam. Best Action Choreography, Best Film Editing, Best Originals. Film score. Who who played? Who was Sweat Lamb? Who did he play? James. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty good. Two thousand Fantasia Film Festival. It was nominated for Best Asian Film, but it lost out to Running Out of Time, which was also directed by Johnny Toe, and that one stars Andy Lau. Two thousand Golden Baohinia Awards. So that's a Hong Kong Film Award organized by the Hong Kong Film Critics Association. It won Best Picture. Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Roy Chung, Best Cinematography for Xiu Kung Cheng. And at the 2001 Chinese Film Media Awards, it won Best Screenplay for Nai Hoi Yao. In the Hong Kong Film Awards, the, he lost Beck's Best Picture to uh, Ordinary Heroes, an uh, Anhui film. Okay, yeah. Also starring Anthony Wong. Okay. <laughs> And I one in one of the interviews, and this is quite an old interview, so he may have changed his mind. But that was, he said, that was his favorite role to have played. Okay. So maybe it is a noteworthy picture to seek out at some point in the future. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. 
it's about it's sort of like this uh, historical drama about Vietnamese refugees after the war yeah in Hong Kong I think like the so-called boat people yeah oh um didn't Anne Hui do a film about that subject earlier in her career she may have she may have I'm not like a, I, I've mentioned before I'm not as familiar with her I'm sure Chow Yun-Fat's like starred in a film like that in the 80s it is possible there's a there's a John Woo film about Vietnam not not a great film but it is nevertheless a film is that bullet in the head that might be it they're Vietnam veterans that come back with PTSD and then mm. they proceed in their heroic bloodshed I forget what's the name of the movie, but it's one of one of the ones that he did. So yeah, Chow Yun Fat uh, also appeared in All About Ah Long, which is um, made by Johnny To. And yeah, the story of Wu Viet, a uh, Hong Kong political drama directed by An Hui, Vietnamese refugees, boat people. Yeah, so the story of Wu Viet, nineteen eighty one. I, I we've talked about this film, and I think we've talked about. I I think you um, recommended it to me, right? No, what I think... Or was it up against another film? I think that's what happened. Put yeah. Award. yeah. Uh, do you I think... I mean, there was, there, there, was a, there was a point in my life where I would religiously watch Hong Kong films, like, nonstop. So it may yeah. be one of those that kind of slipped in at that time. I can't remember. But anyway, what were you going to say? Yeah, do you think you'll check out more uh, Johnny To films after this? I don't know, because the, on the one hand, he is so diverse that it's hard to judge him from any given film as a whole. On the other hand, I really, and, and I really enjoyed the mission. That's on the positive side. On the negative side, I did rewatch PTU and Election, and I sort of felt just like I felt the first time when I saw them. I mean, that they're, you know, they're, I can see why they're praised, but they just didn't appeal to me. I just didn't enjoy watching them. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if, I might, seek him out and maybe watch some of the better known ones, some of the other better known ones. There was a, a recent one that he did that won Best Picture at the Hong Kong Film Festival like a few just a few years ago. And uh, it was called what was it? Johnny Toe. Or maybe he was just a producer in that one. Trivisa, yes. Yeah, he was only a producer and he won Best Picture. And it's, it's also a crime film. And just to, to reiterate for our listeners, the Hong Kong Film Awards are sort of the equivalent Oscars for, for Hong Kong. Uh, and he was a producer in that one through his company, Milky Way, Milky Way uh, Productions, or Milky Way Films, whatever it's called. And this was, movie was also banned in China for whatever reason. And it, just the description looks very interesting. Okay. And it seems to, it was highly praised. So I, maybe I, I would revisit that. So I'm, I might revisit some of the... Uh, some of the ones that seem more interesting or were more critical claim, but he, I, I don't know. Maybe there's something about his style that doesn't quite appeal to me, but for some reason, it really, I really enjoyed it in the mission. Yeah. Maybe it is the simplicity of the plot of the mission, because the plot is so simple and minimalist that the technique has, has time to shine out. But I think both Election and PTU have pretty complex plots. Yeah. And I think that just gets in the way. I have to admit, I haven't seen those two. Okay. They're, they're two of the better knows. I think he also won Best Director for PTU, Police Tactical Unit, I think is the long name for that. Yeah, I remember them being like a really big deal when they came out. Yes, yes. Uh, so he, it's one of the better known ones. Breaking News is apparently like another big one that I have not, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen that one. And Election is 
perhaps his most famous one. Yeah. And that one's got a sequel to it. Election 2, yeah. Because it was so... I think it probably did very well in the box office. Yeah. Uh, but Election, honestly, it doesn't even feel like a Johnny Toe film to me. Like, it doesn't... It's, it feels more like an ordinary gangster film. And, and I read in an interview that he said he was trying to be very realistic about that. Like, uh, he was trying to, to give very realistic depiction of the triads. Yeah. And this process that they do. And that I think they, that may have sort of, like, caused him to cast aside his more idiosyncratic tendencies. Could it also be, like, uh, the writer he's collaborating with as well? That's always possible, yeah. Okay, so we have one more section to cover, and that is, do you think it deserved the recognition that it got, the mission? Uh, yeah, I think absolutely it deserved the recognition it got. Like, I love the way that it plays with the genre, and, uh, like, uh, it's a lean, what's it, like 86 minutes, something like that, and... Very close, well, around 90 minutes, that's all I remember, but yeah. Yeah, very, very, A very lean film. And it contains so much information in its uh, visuals. You've got a great ensemble cast, uh, great direction. Um, I think it's like... Uh, a person who's really confident about um, telling a story visually. Yeah, uh, just like all those sort of elements of cinema are utilized perfectly, like the sound design and the camera movements to uh, get you into this um, sort of, uh, genre exercise, essentially. And you care about each of the characters because the actors are fantastic. Absolutely. And I would agree with all that. Uh, and they absolutely deserve the best director. This is you know, a very clear sort of like effect of what a director, a very clear example of what a director can do to elevate a movie. And this is so, so such a great example of that. So it deserves the best director award. Absolutely. In terms of best picture, I have not seen uh, in both the Hong Kong Film Awards and the Golden Horse Awards, which are the two major awards in Hong Kong and Taiwan, I think. Yeah. I haven't seen Ordinary Heroes. It's, it's supposed to be, you know, Anne Hui, of course, is a great director herself. And, uh, uh, this seems to be reasonably acclaimed, so perhaps that deserves Best Picture, but I would have been okay if the mission also won that that category, based on what I've seen so far. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Deserved all the awards and recognition that it got. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for our discussion of the mission by Johnny Toe. I thought it was a great discussion. Uh, there's a lot to talk about Johnny Toe. There's probably a lot more to talk about, but of course we have to end it at some point. Our episode for next week is going to feature a return to Japan with the movie Departures, of uh, the Best Foreign Film Oscar winner of 2008, directed by, and I don't remember this, Jason, do you happen to know the name of the director? Let me look it up. <laughs> Yojiro Takita. Who I do not know, but that's okay. Uh, because, you know, perhaps this one film is all he needs to to cement his name in the history of uh, major Japanese award winners. Yikes. Um, I don't recognize any of his films. Yeah, it seems to be perhaps... A, perhaps we'll, we'll talk about it. Perhaps we'll familiarize ourselves uh, with... Actually, it looks like you might have a pink film background, <laughs> judging by his titles. Interesting, interesting. Uh, but we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a chance to talk about him, uh, and we'll be more familiar with him when we prepare for the next week's episode. Uh, so before we close this episode, Jason, is there anything you'd like to, to close with? I uh, hope everybody enjoyed our discussion and um, we'll probably get around to watching more Johnny Toe films in the future because the guy is quite prolific and um, he helped uh, keep Hong Kong cinema popular post-1997. Um, 
Okay. So that's it for this episode of Heroic Purgatory in Asian Cinema Podcast. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or you can tweet us at Heroic uh, Purgatory, all in one word, on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next time.